Hello, and welcome to Fast Track. I'm Sammy Ravi Kumar, second year medical student at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences and president of the Emergency Medicine Interest Group. The purpose of this podcast is to help students find out if emergency medicine is right for them and to hear from interesting speakers about their path to emergency medicine. We hope that this resource and others on our website help students along their path to medical school, residency applications, and into residency. Listeners will hear from different perspectives within emergency medicine, from students to residents to attendings. Today on our podcast, we'll be interviewing Dr. Joelle Simpson. Dr. Simpson is a George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences alum from the class of 2005. She completed her residency in pediatrics at Johns Hopkins University and went on to complete her fellowship in pediatric emergency medicine at Children's National Medical Center. She currently serves as the division chief of emergency medicine and the medical director for emergency preparedness at Children's National Medical Center. Today, we will be discussing her experiences in the field of disaster medicine. Dr. Simpson, it's wonderful to be speaking with you today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to speak to this audience. Of course. So I hope your day is going well today. I just kind of wanted to start off with a little bit of discussion on what got you interested in emergency medicine in the first place. That's an interesting question because I will say I entered medical school thinking I was going to be a neurosurgeon. And that's because uh, my grandmother had had neurosurgery and I was so fascinated by it. But I realized that after thinking through what really appeals to me about medicine, which is really, um, I love procedures. I love high acuity. I love the adrenaline rush and the sort of the critical thinking process that's involved in um, multiple different types of fields. It's really nice to be in emergency medicine where I can um, be exposed to the cardiology complaints, the pulmonary complaints, the oncology complaints, and sort of get to um, keep my clinical expertise up to par in multiple different fields. There's some people who really like more focus um, in narrow fields, and I totally respect that. I kind of love, couldn't find one thing that I loved when I was going through medical school. And so this broad approach, um, while still having the ability to interact very closely with patients and the community and do public health work, it sort of met all of my needs. That's so fascinating that you say that, because I know I talked to individuals who are interested in emergency medicine, and a lot of them do say the same thing where it's a very broad field and you also get to have that interaction with high acuity patients. So it's definitely something that's very versatile. Yeah, no, definitely. And I'll say that, you know, it's also important to have patience with yourself because I didn't come to the realization that I wanted to do emergency medicine until after residency in pediatrics. So I um, finished medical school deciding that I really, really loved experience with kids and families, and so went into pediatrics. Actually, while I was doing my pediatric residency, I uh, really, really loved cardiology um, and was thinking maybe one day I'll do cardiology, but I graduated residency and was a general pediatrician for a bit and would spend some time working in a local emergency department, moonlighting in their urgent care side, caring for kids. It happened to be the year of the H1N1 pandemic. And so the experience of having to manage large volumes of patients as a general pediatrician in an emergency department, but also dealing with some very sick and complex patients on the front line, sort of as they walked in without um, any sort of heads up to me as a provider, I really wanted to uh, be able to better deliver that 
care and experience for patients and so decided to pursue the pediatric emergency medicine fellowship. And now I couldn't have made a better choice, but it definitely took a lot of checking other fields and exploring and asking questions and having mentors that sort of helped me um, sort of discover what I was most passionate about. Um, and it worked well, it's a perfect match. Definitely. And I think that's something that's so comforting for our students to hear as well, because especially as a second year medical student myself, a lot of us are trying to figure out what we want to do as a career and just, you know, basically pursue for the rest of our lives. And a lot of us are ruling a lot of things in and not ruling a lot of things out. So it's very comforting to know that someone as accomplished as you has been able to explore those fields and figure out what you want to do. And eventually you did settle into something that you seem very passionate about. So it's really nice to hear that. Yeah. And I would say, I'm sure my story is not unique. There's many of us in our fields now that navigated a lot of other options until we got to where we are. So Definitely. So kind of segueing into that, what got you interested then in disaster medicine specifically? Because emergency medicine is already very fast paced, very high acuity. So what got you, it kind of pushed you toward doing disaster, which is a level above that? No, that's a great question. So um, when I got my MD from George Washington, I also got a master's in public health. And the field that I chose was in health management. Um, I always had an interest in, in while I, I really, really love the doctor to patient sort of that bedside interaction and the clinical expertise, I always wondered, you know, sort of upstream from that on a public health perspective, you know, what could we do to improve the system um, uh, for, the, for the broader population? And so I mentioned that when I was a general pediatrician working in an emergency department that was doing H1N1, well, other experiences um, that I've had is starting medical school, and it was the year of 9-11. And I remember walking to my anatomy class, and because I was in D.C., I could see off in the distance the smoke from the Pentagon. And so subsequently, when I was doing my clinical um, or doing my rotations in my, uh, with my preceptor as a first-year medical student, I happened to be working in a veterans clinic and um, was seeing sort of the impact of the mental health issues and sort of downstream disaster impact on our population. And I, I kept feeling in some ways, it's great to have these um, opportunities to touch patients' lives on the one-to-one, -one, but what can we do on a broader perspective to improve our system for the population at large? So taking into account, you know, the context of the experience as a medical student from 9-11, and then as a pediatrician working with the H1N1 pandemic, there was already a theme, not to mention a couple other experiences, but already a theme of you know, being ready for disasters as a key, um, a, a key and important factor in healthcare. Um, you know, healthcare is already burdened on a day-to-day -to, -day to deliver excellent care for multiple reasons, whether it's financing or quality, safety, those other things that we keep pushing ourselves. But, but when we are also just hit with a crisis such as, such as terrorism or pandemics or um, any of those threats, I really felt that um, this was an opportunity for me to carve out a role, especially as a pediatrician, because most disaster medicine uh, folks, as you can imagine, came from that military perspective or maybe in general emergency medicine. But the lens of being a pediatric disaster medicine person, having that perspective, I thought was a really a unique niche that I could carve for myself. And it was something I was passionate about because it not only allowed me to bring my expertise of pediatrics, and my expertise of emergency medicine, 
but also that lens of public health that I had been trained in in the past that I could sort of incorporate um, in terms of, um, of my career. So I've had a lot of satisfaction sort of being able to be in that space. And what I love most is being able to um, either mentor or, or teach others about um, kids and disasters and what we can do as a system to improve uh, our readiness for, for children and families. Yeah, definitely. And I think especially now that we are on the tail end of the COVID-19 pandemic, it's so imperative that we talk about disaster medicine and what we're going to do when these situations come up. Uh, as you mentioned, the system is already so burdened. And so how do we be prepared for these times when it gets overloaded? And I found your point really fascinated about being a pediatric disaster medicine physician and how that's a unique perspective. Could you expand a little bit more upon that and just talk about how, you know, being a peds physician, how that's shaped your view on disaster medicine and also maybe give an example of like a situation where your expertise really came into handy during a disaster? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I think one of the greatest lessons we've learned probably came out of the experience of Hurricane Katrina um, a couple of years ago, where we saw that um, a, a region of the country was affected pretty significantly. And there were disaster plans in place in terms of sheltering and so forth for people that had to evacuate their homes. But what we did also unfortunately learn from that experience is that um, the lens of how we uh, prepare for kids in those environments was um, had not really been there um, ahead of time. Uh, and so there were issues such as prolonged reunification of children with their families who had been separated during that disaster, as well as just sort of um, really addressing the needs of kids that might be placed into shelter because they are evacuated from their homes, right? So um, you start to think about, even if you had to go, for instance, babysit um, a, a cousin or a niece or a nephew, and how much uh, a parent might be informing you about all their unique needs, whether it's the diaper bag or if they uh, have to eat what they need to eat and how. So think about that across the different developmental stages and how important it really is in disaster planning to meet those needs and prepare for them ahead of time. We can fast forward to COVID-19 um, and some of the things we've seen right now is for instance, planning for a population where there are approved vaccines for adults, but not so much for kids um, or that there's delayed ability to approve vaccines for kids as their studies are a lot more extensive and require um, a sort of a, a, another layer um, in terms of being able to get them to approval. So. Um, now what we, you know, as a pediatrician, for instance, in this particular disaster context, we have to think about the policy implications of uh, mandating masks or allowing people to remove masks in an environment where kids are not protected by vaccines, um, but adults might be. And so the long-term impact of school, the, the immediate impact, sorry, of school being opened and what it might mean when kids come together, that's what I mean by having that pediatric lens to offer about the implications of our policies or our disaster planning um, in terms of um, the health and wellness of children. So um, I have been able to uh, both use some of the experiences we've had historically working with colleagues similar to mine in pediatric disaster medicine to th think about all the different types of disasters we've faced, whether it's be terrorism, um, earthquakes, hurricanes, and so forth. And with each event, start to really look at the plans that FEMA or others have had in place and sort of think about 
if we have a baby or babies or toddlers or young kids that are school-aged or um, adolescents, how their different needs might um, play into our planning. Um, so, so it's really been exciting to go back and review those and hopefully make a difference for the future if we were to be hit, like you said, with another pandemic or another event that, that caused a surge. Um, and I will say that it's really um, exciting that I think one of the, one of maybe if we we're gonna look at the glass half full of the pandemic is really the, the impact on children has really been amplified, I think, in the public space. And so the importance of that pediatric disaster expertise, um, it really has it, been nice to see because um, it makes you feel very valued and, uh, and I've loved being able to recruit students or other trainees across the multiple disciplines. It doesn't have to be pediatrics only, really also a lot, a lot of my work involves getting people in other specialties um, to recognize how important it is to advocate for kids when they're planning any aspect, any type of disaster. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. And, you know, the integration among different fields is also something that I really appreciate about EM and disaster medicine as well. I remember when we were talking once you mentioned that disaster medicine isn't just EM. It, it's not just emergency medicine. It's not just one particular field. It spans this gambit of multiple different specialties and in that there's a bunch of interdisciplinary action that can be taken. So I think your point about coordinating with different types of positions is super, super fascinating. If you can go into that a little bit, how is, you know, being a disaster medicine physician, how has that been for you as far as working with different fields and really bringing a bunch of different areas of expertise together? Yeah, no, well, so I think there's such a huge advantage to being emergency medicine because when we have patients of all different needs who require various specialists, um, there's already that common practice of calling the cardiologist or the surgeon or you know, working in an interdisciplinary way um, pretty closely with, with fairly sick patients. So having those networks um, as a premise from emergency medicine is great. But I'll say, for instance, the experience during COVID-19, I've worked very closely with our chief of pathology. And why is that? Well, COVID testing was a huge issue earlier on in the pandemic. And the, um, the need for that in terms of providing testing for children was um, a, a, big, a big topic of discussion, particularly here in the DC area. So what we learned is understanding things like the supply chain and testing um, the, the testing materials, such as the swabs and the medium and so forth, all of that was gonna be important for our chief of pathology to have in place um, in order to better plan for the surge of patients that we might receive and to meet their needs with testing. That being said, I also work very closely with our infectious disease colleagues. That's fairly self-explanatory given that it's an infectious disease threat, um, okay. but also working with our surgeons because as the pandemic continues, there's still the need for emergency surgeries and so forth. And, and as um, the, the safety of children uh, and, and the safety of staff in preparing kids for surgery, having to plan that all out and understand the implications of um, distancing when you have to be very close to a patient with surgery and what the risks are, all of those were discussions that were pretty exciting to have as people started to think about um, their practice and maybe even their practice environment 
and maintain the safety of patients. Um, and now where we are on closer, hopefully to the tail end of the COVID pandemic is really starting to think about um, how has healthcare evolved with these new technologies we now have um, integrated in our practice, such as telemedicine um, as a way to manage surge. And that's a disaster concept, right? So how do we think about evolving backup systems, maybe telemedicine and other systems that can um, keep us ready for patients should they need us in a disaster scenario. So um, that's a conversation that anybody that touches a patient um, need to now, I think many people are more aware of that, of having that disaster lens on it um, in terms of continuity of care, continuity of practice, safety mechanisms to be able to still see patients um, despite the overlying disaster. Yeah, definitely. And I think the long-term implications and the preparation that we do after disaster is just as important as everything that went on. Taking the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, implementing telemedicine, and then now seeing that a lot of doctor's offices are starting to use telemedicine, it's been super interesting to see that continuity and also to see how disasters are shaping our world more long-term. So not just, you know, in the short term right now and going into the future, whether we start implementing telemedicine, whether we start implementing, you know, protocols for social distancing, if another pandemic comes up, will we be able to invent a vaccine faster? These are all questions that I've seen come up. And I think with the field of disaster medicine, it's super great because we're able to really plan for the future. Agree a hundred percent. Um, you know, there's the four phases of disaster that I have um, taught in our disaster concentration at GW, which is um, thinking about the preparation for disaster, the response, um, the mitigation. So hopefully what can we do to prevent the, the negative consequences of any proposed disaster? And then you're right, recovery is a huge component. And within recovery, there's this idea of what can we do in the future to promote resilience not just of um, our community, but when speaking to this audience, for instance, of healthcare providers, you know, what could we do now with the fatigue and the burnout and all the other elements of this pandemic where we are caring for our communities, um, but really need to also, part of disaster planning is, is thinking about how we care for ourselves and how do we um, continue to encourage personal preparedness um, in order to endure these challenges that will continue to come up um, for in healthcare in general moving forward. Yeah, definitely. And you touched upon this a little bit when we were talking about just the involvement and the emphasis on pediatric patients in disaster medicine. Um, so with your disaster medicine training and navigating the COVID pandemic, there's been a lot of debate over whether kids should be going back to school whether you know 12 and up students or kids should be getting the vaccine. Do you have any particular thoughts on that? Or it doesn't have to be any personal opinions, but any updates on how things are going in that space and what we can expect for the future? Yeah, I know that's such an ongoing discussion. And it's another reason why I'm so um, uh, happy to be able to offer my lens as a pediatrician um, along with my colleagues in a similar space about um, the sort of that the public commentary and what should what what might be best for kids. 
And I'll take a step back and say, yes, there's issues around the access to the COVID-19 vaccine, or really more the availability based on whether or not it gets approved for children under 12. But then there's also a um, sort of a, uh, the, the other lens that I see as a pediatrician is the fact that we have fallen behind on routine vaccination. So, you know, as a disaster medicine doc, I worry about whether there might be a surge in measles or there might be a surge of other conditions that we now are, know are vaccine preventable diseases um, because the, the uh, impact of the pandemic has been um, to have a secondary, secondary impact on the um, uptick of, of families getting their kids vaccinated. Um, and then, you know, the Surgeon General recently talked about the, the uh, sort of mini, the disaster within the disaster, which is that disaster of the impact of misinformation. So um, as we are going through this pandemic and, and fortunately have been able to approve the vaccine down to 12 years of age, as we open up school systems, um, we're fielding a couple different threats. There is the availability and the approval of the vaccine. So the researchers are working on trying to expedite those studies as much as possible in a safe way to say that they're approved for younger ages and hopefully being able to get that through. But then there's also the battle of the misinformation that's going out of, of um, sort of that, that anti-vaccine mentality or the mistrust of the vaccine science um, and, and downstream having that impact on, on possible lower rates of children being able to take the vaccine. And then there's the issue of uh, these school systems that do need to open because we know that schools, particularly for me as a pediatrician, Schools support our work in pediatrics because that's where we get mental health screening. That's where we have um, food available to families. You know, we've had a whole discussion about the exacerbation of health disparities, particularly for certain communities, such as the rural or lower income communities, uh, where access to some basic healthcare needs, which includes food screening for various conditions, happens um, in that school system. So the threat of not having the ability to protect our kids with the vaccine is multi, multi-layered and multi-pronged. And I think the importance of a role as a pediatric disaster medicine physician is being able to elaborate that narrative um, on all those different levels. Because I think at the surface, people can say, well, you know, uh, kids are not vaccinated, plus or minus whether or not they're allowed to wear vaccines in the schools, or also us dealing with the issue of potentially tracking outbreaks in schools that could happen if we return kids to the school system. But then I, I need the public to be aware of all the other consequences or, or even the policymakers to be aware of all the other consequences. Sort of the, the routine vaccines that are not happening, the mental health impact, the exacerbated health disparities, um, the impact on our community because some parents aren't able to go to work until kids are able to get back into schools. So. I don't have an answer, but I do, I am proud to say that I've been at the table to have discussions with our policymakers, with the heads of our school systems, with our healthcare system to see how we could support the school systems in order to come to some sort of resolution of what would be best for children with this upcoming school year. Right, and I think that's such a difficult debate to have because on one hand, we wanna keep our kids as safe as possible, and on the other hand, we also want to give them as normal of a life and an experience as possible, given everything that's going on around us. So I guess it's just finding that sweet spot of at what point do we start prioritizing normalcy and trying to get our kids back into school and 
trying to keep them as safe as possible, of course, at the same time, but really trying to get back to what the world used to be, especially with COVID, but I could imagine with other disasters as well, and just trying to maintain that normalcy in kids' lives as they're growing up. No, absolutely. And I, I honestly think even beyond normalcy, it's really just sort of the basic right to um, some of the preventive um, components of being in, in schools. So schools are psychologically healing. It's where kids build community. It's where they, um, they are screened for their regular developmental functions. Um, it's where they um, build esteem often. Um, it's where they learn about other adults that care for them outside of the family and learn how to interact socially and build those uh, relationships that help them be successful adults. So it's so, so, so critical um, that it, 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 is, it is a very complex conversation, but um, very, very, very important one to have. Definitely. And I kind of want to, you know, touch on, so you are currently the division chief of emergency medicine, as well as the medical director for emergency preparedness at a children's hospital. How, could you talk a little bit more about those roles and kind of how those roles have impacted the way that you've approached disasters? Yeah, so I was, um, I've been the medical director for emergency preparedness since 2015 for Children's National. And that was around the time that we had the Ebola threats and um, we've had a couple other sort of, you know, mass casualty, mass threats within the DC region. So I've, I've been serving in that function for some time um, as a pediatric emergency medicine physician, working closely with the Department of Health and our other local um, emergency departments in our region. So that in itself has been really exciting for the reasons I, I've spoken to you about before. It meets my passion for clinical medicine, public health, um, and then of course, with that overlay of disaster medicine. Um, in being promoted to the chief of the division, I think that that has been a really nice compliment to the role in disaster medicine, only because there is a um, platform that I am now on in being able to speak to um, probably a little bit more directly with other hospitals and with our policymakers uh, with the lens of a more population health perspective. So in my chief role, you know, we have an emergency department that sees on average upwards of 100,000 kids a year, which is a fairly large um, population to serve. We're in one of the top 10 largest children's hospital emergency departments in the country. And then with the ability to um, work in the DC area where the federal government lives, um, and, you know, I have a very close relationship with the American Academy of Pediatrics. I sit on their disaster council as well. Um, being able to have that leadership role that I'm there on the front lines of patient care as an ER doc. I'm there on the front lines of emergency preparedness as a medical director of emergency preparedness for the Children's Hospital. But now the combination of those two allow me to have that platform to speak to our policymakers, even our federal policymakers, our local policymakers, and network with our other large children's hospitals and other large cities um, that are dealing with the same uh, challenges of, of disaster planning. So, so that's, it's been a really an awesome sort of complement of those roles because uh, they support each other. Um, and uh, it's, it's busy 
but very rewarding. Yeah, I could imagine. And I could, you know, think about, especially in DC, there must be a lot of discussion on disasters and prevention and planning, given the amount of government embassies and offices we have here. Has, do you think the location has impacted you in any way in the way that you approach disaster medicine? Has it opened new opportunities for you to be in DC and to be working in this field particularly? Oh, absolutely. I mean, DC is on a spotlight on an international level, for sure, because the US government sits in Washington, DC. So um, that has certainly uh, put a lens on how I approach disaster medicine. Every time we have a public gathering in DC, or we have the civil rights movements that um, come through. So, you know, we, we have a lot of stuff that happens on the mall, uh, large gatherings, protests, et cetera, which is um, a huge component of the type of disaster planning I do for this hospital. But it's not unique to being in DC. I think if anybody was to approach a career in um, disaster medicine and where they'd wanna be to build that career, um, I can say that my colleagues in California, you know, they carry the expertise in um, a lot of weather related events or things like earthquakes, the wildfires. Um, those are areas that I don't necessarily have as much expertise, especially firsthand because it doesn't occur in the DC area very much. But you can become an expert in really any particular topic within disaster based on where you are. And um, I really encourage people to take advantage of those opportunities. If, if you go to Florida and you become the hurricane expert, or if you um, go to Nebraska and you become the um, sort of rural medicine um, expert, or you, know, you, you name the state and there is a unique advantage to being there. DC, the lens certainly is on um, mass gatherings, um, really a lot of disaster policy opportunities because so many of the national organizations have their headquarters here in DC. So you can have those conversations and be with those thinkers in the same room in terms of disaster planning. Um, so, so, but I've taken advantage of that and it's been, um, it, it's really been a very nice opportunity, not to mention being a part of um, GW, which as an educational leader has, its, has a huge advantage um, in being able to be in that space and develop things like our disaster medicine a concentration um, and growing the future talent around um, disaster medicine. Definitely. And I think your point about, you know, preparing for disasters, we talked a little bit about recovery from disasters and we talked about what we do when a disaster happens, but the prep is actually one of, I feel like one of the most important parts because it's the idea of preventing it from happening in the first place. And I remember being like seeing the presidential inauguration happen and just seeing all of the EMTs and all of the trucks lined up just in case there is a disaster that happens. Were you part of that? And how, you know, what was your role within that and how did you feel about it? Yes, so um, every time there's a public gathering in Washington, DC, the hospital systems are typically involved with the entity called the Health and Medical Coalition, which is um, a gathering of all of the players that are involved in disaster planning for the city. And that would include the Department of Health, um, EMS, so 911, the 911 system, the hospitals, 
um, the acute care primary care network um, and the poison control center and a, and a couple other players that are part of that group. So I've been involved because we were the only children's hospital in Washington, DC, in terms of not just speaking as a healthcare entity, being poised and ready to receive patients should something occur, but also really speaking to support the care of kids if they were to be involved in a disaster. So every single time there is an quote unquote activation of a potential disaster threat, typically the Department of Health will lead the bringing together of all those entities. And I've been at the table or um, supporting a representative from our hospital in terms, in terms of making sure that we are part of the planning process. And then also of course, part of the response. Yes, definitely. And um, you mentioned the scholarly concentration at George Washington University. So for our listeners, George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences has a program called the Scholarly Concentration Program, where students can specialize in different subsets of medicine that interest them. So one of those subsets is disaster medicine, for which Dr. Simpson was the co-director for. So could you just talk a little bit more about the scholarly concentration program and what your involvement was with it and how, you know, kind of teaching the next generation of doctors about this field has shaped the way that you see disaster medicine yourself? Yeah, sure. So um, what's really interesting is that I, you know, like I mentioned, I started medical school the same year that 9-11 occurred. And I think this idea of disaster medicine started to emerge not too long after that. Um, and so I am very proud that GW um, took the initiative to build one of the first scholarly concentrations that had a disaster medicine option within it. And what it really means is um, allowing the future generation of physicians to be able to think critically with that lens of disaster medicine, because um, it is becoming its own field uh, in response to so many of the different threats that have been going on around the world. Um, and so I have been the co-director of that scholarly concentration for about five or six years now. And it does involve some didactic learning. So a couple of lectures, usually about once a month in the first and second year, and um, just teaching the basics of disaster medicine. So things like that disaster cycle that I talked about before, preparedness, mitigation, recovery, response, and understanding the implications of that, or even how do we stand up a city and what are the, the preset players that are involved, like I mentioned, like the health and medical coalition and, and how do they all interplay and how does that similar between DC and Maryland or DC and Florida, um, because there is an infrastructure in place for partnerships with healthcare across the country, but we don't learn about it in medical school. So this disaster medicine scholarly concentration sort of brings awareness and understanding about the role a physician can play in really protecting our community in a disaster. And I really, really um, enjoyed being a part of it because I wish I had that structure when I was going through medical school back in the day. Um, that being said, with my new role as chief of emergency medicine and holding the role of medical director of emergency preparedness, um, also being the co-director of the scholarly concentration certainly has its challenges. I am still here as a mentor and a resource to the, um, the medical students, um, but there, and what's nice is that the partnership I've had, my co-director is a, um, a general emergency medicine physician. Uh, so I think that the future is bright for anyone that 
uh, decides to develop a disaster medicine concentration at their medical school, or those of us that already have them in terms of being able to consider whatever field you might choose, pathology, emergency medicine, um, pulmonology, general pediatrics, general medicine, um, you know, it allows you to critically think about how you would insert yourself in the world as a physician um, in terms of contributing to the response in a disaster or even the planning for a disaster. So the future is bright for medical students. Um, you know, while disasters are sad to know that we're at uh, such a high frequency of declared disasters lately over the past couple of years, since 9-11, certainly there's been an uptick. Um, it is, it's good to know that healthcare is aware of this and we're preparing our future generations of providers to be better suited to, to serve during a disaster. Definitely, and I could speak for myself as a member of the Disaster Medicine Scholarly Concentration Program. I've definitely learned so much from the lecture series that we've had and the little workshops that we've had as well. And just really getting exposure to the field. Because when I first applied, I thought, you know, oh, disasters, this is something that I wanna get into. And I had a very one track view of what that would look like. And so going through the motions of, it's not just about treating the disaster is not just about recovering, it's about preparing and really making sure that we keep society as safe as possible. And when we can't do that, how do we react to it? And learning that in a systematic way has been extremely enlightening for me personally. I have to ask just out of curiosity, has COVID-19 and this year specifically caused a surge in interest in disaster medicine scholarly concentration at all? I'll put it this way, when I started five or six years ago, we had an average of four students in our scholarly concentration. We now have 20 plus students on average wanting to be in our scholarly concentration. So not just COVID, but I think just this awareness after the hurricanes that we've had, the earthquake threats, as students have applied coming from multiple parts of the country that have been dealing with various types of disasters, I think that awareness of the importance of a physician's role in a disaster has been um, happening more and more, or, or students that also that have parents in the healthcare field and seeing the impact and realizing that they may have a role to play. So that interest has definitely been there, I would say even before the pandemic, probably definitely more so since the pandemic. Um, and, and I didn't mention, I, I said that the um, opportunities in a scholarly concentration with the lecture series in the first and second year, but, but in the third and fourth year in particular, and sometimes even in the summer after the first year, as you know, there are opportunities to be mentored in um, experience projects or in research, because um, there's so many unanswered questions. The, the nice thing about disaster medicine is that it's such a, a new concept. It really has opened up ways for us to think about medicine and, and ask other research questions that we may not have been asking before that are really, really important. So the field is very ripe. I mean, and, and the response from the federal government and even private institutions is now putting out things like funding opportunities and education opportunities for physicians or physicians in training. Um, so, you know, while there may be some areas of medicine that are crowded right now, because everybody used to go into those fields, I will say anyone that's interested in disaster medicine, the opportunities are very, very broad. Um, whether you want to be a researcher, an educator, an advocacy uh, person, any of those angles in terms of disaster medicine are, um, there's, there's growing and growing opportunities because of the pandemic. For sure. And 
This kind of segues into something I'm curious about. So what advice would you give students who are currently interested in pursuing a career in emergency medicine who then want to work with disaster medicine in the future, especially for students who don't have something like the scholarly concentration program to really have a systematic way to learn about disaster medicine? Well, so in emergency medicine, which is um, its own residency, um, there has been quite a few leaders in emergency medicine that have put forth um, curricula for disaster uh, training at the residency level um, for anyone who was not exposed to any formal disaster training at the uh, medical school level. So I would urge anyone in emergency medicine that has any inkling of interest in disaster medicine to, to look up those papers. Um, you can look up disaster medicine curriculum for emergency medicine. And then uh, it, it is not too uncommon to maybe consider even emailing or reaching out the authors of those papers if you are not at a program or you don't match to a program that has a formal disaster medicine lecture series. However, I would be shocked that most emergency medicine training programs don't have some disaster medicine lens to them because it has become such a requirement for those interested in emergency medicine to be um, aware and knowledgeable about um, sort of the, the science of disaster medicine as well. Uh, then there's the other um, approach of pediatric emergency medicine, which um, you can enter pediatric emergency medicine either through a residency in pediatrics and then a fellowship in pediatric emergency medicine or through doing emergency medicine residency and then doing a pediatric emergency medicine fellowship. Um, and certainly in pediatric emergency medicine, we, we are um, building a curriculum around disaster medicine, as it, particularly with that lens as it pertains to kids. Um, and so uh, we are piggybacking pretty significantly on the strides that have been made in emergency medicine uh, for those curricula that are being developed to build that here. So, for those of you interested in pediatric emergency medicine, the field is ripe for future educators of disaster medicine and building that as a career. That's, that's just a little plug I'm gonna put in at this point. But otherwise, emergency medicine goes hand in hand with disaster medicine. You can either choose to um, explore leaders in the area just by, by Googling the different areas you might pursue to do your residency. Um, uh, but a lot of programs are starting to develop a disaster medicine curriculum so that you can figure out how you want to build that for yourself as an attending one day. That's really wonderful to hear. I'm so glad because I, I know there's a lot of students that I have talked to at, you know, both at GW and at other schools, and they hear disaster medicine and they think, oh, that's really cool. That's something that I haven't really explored before. So it's nice to know that research and work exists out there to educate students, even if they're not particularly in a program about it or just want to learn a little bit more about disasters in general. Absolutely. So like, what are some things that excite you about the future of disaster medicine? There's so much, honestly. Um, my particular passion, particularly right now, is the work we can do in advocacy um, around some of the, um, the really, uh, some of the issues that have come, come up pretty significantly during the pandemic that, that speak to my heart, which is um, sort of the topic of health disparities um, and how significantly that has been exacerbated by disasters. And I think that unfortunately, it, it probably did take a disaster to really bring that to the public's attention in a very dramatic way. And then being able to advocate to, um, to the federal government and others 
about the need to support funding to do the research to um, mitigate that that issue of health disparities, uh, particularly during a disaster. That's really the the lane that I'm going down right now. And then with that that overlay of um, that impact on pediatrics. So it's very, if I were to look back at, you know, maybe if I had a diary back in medical school, back in 2001, and now I'm looking at 2021, 20 years later, you know, all of the ways that I wanted to sort of, quote unquote, change the world, um, which is uh, to really focus on those topics of um, how do you improve the life for those that are the um, most dis disadvantaged um, and then sort of protect the, as best as possible, help protect that population from having an even worse outcome um, from whatever threats exist. I feel like I get to um, work towards that goal every single day and being able to work with um, the next generation of physicians that are um, finding their own passion about how they want to improve the world, so to say. I know that sounds almost very utopian, but improve the world to say and, and seeing sort of more public acknowledgement about disaster medicine and the science of disaster medicine and the expertise of disaster medicine. It's really, really refreshing to not feel sort of alone in that field. So I have a lot of hope, especially being interviewed on a podcast like this that hope that likely has an audience of all of our future physicians who might be wondering, um, you know, how do I carve out my path? I'm so happy to have a path that might've been carved out that someone can follow or even help someone find their own path. Because back in 2001, the idea of disaster medicine didn't exist. Um, and so I see progress and I think there's so much of a sort of a bright future ahead of us. To, I'm excited to see what the next 20 years will show. For sure. And we as students are so grateful to have advocates like you educating us about these fields and educating us, especially about health disparities within not just disasters, but within emergency medicine as well. And we really hope that we're training ourselves to be the next generation of doctors who could then go on and really, you know, flush out the field and be there as advocates in the future. So yeah, that's pretty much all I was hoping to speak with you about. But do you have any final thoughts for our listeners before we sign off? I honestly feel that, I mean, I'm excited that so many people may be interested in emergency medicine. I do think that, you know, it's, it, I'm excited about the field, so I love that others are. But if you change your mind and um, in whatever capacity you want to serve as a physician, I really encourage anyone listening to, to um think beyond the boundaries that we sometimes self-impose, right? So you can be a disaster medicine expert if you're a pediatrician, if you are a psychiatrist. What has really, really come to par in the pandemic is just the need for us all to work together across the disciplines, because there's it is, it is not the work of the emergency medicine physician alone. And in that vein, I also will say, if you decide to go into emergency medicine, really um, thinking beyond your field and how you continue to build relationships with all the colleagues across the other disciplines to draw them into disaster medicine. We do have the advantage of most emergency medicine people sort of speaking the lingo of disaster medicine, but I think it's incumbent upon us to spread that um, knowledge of these disaster constructs and disaster knowledge across fields. And that can probably start happening even at the medical student level. 
You know, when you are matching and your friend goes off into orthopedics or they go off into, um, you name the field, um, it's important to sort of, to um, express upon them, maybe, you know, you should consider disaster medicine concepts even for those other fields. Um, and so it, it will help us be a better prepared community. Um, so that's, that's pretty much my two cents in terms of any advice I would give um, as a wrap up to this podcast. Definitely. And I think it'll be really exciting to see how the field of disaster medicine grows from here and how we become more integrated as a community. And hopefully we could prevent further disasters from happening, such as what we're going through right now. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Simpson. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. For our listeners, if you would like any more information about emergency medicine, you could visit our website at GWU emig.com and feel free to reach out to us with any questions. So thank you so much, Dr. Simpson. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me.